So these people who are experts had much more knowledge than I in those days. And so they guided me and, you know, uh, some of them do travel internationally. And in the early days, one of them came over here and, you know, we went around to the various forests and parks and, you know, this is, this is uh, what the insects do. This is how you're going to look for them. And so, you know, that kind of guidance, mentorship, whether it's in uh, science, entomology or medicine, corrective surgery is very important. You know, it's, as we say, experience comes from, or knowledge comes from experience and experience comes from failure. And that's a terrible way of learning. Mm-hmm. It's better to learn from the, from the failures of others, you know, mm-hmm. of our experience mm-hmm. of others rather than going out yourself and learning all the wrong things before you learn the right, right tricks or the right way. Yeah. So, so, so learning and be guided by others is so crucial. In the same, you know, in my own life as a colorectal surgeon, you know, you don't want to go out and operate the wrong way uh, before you find the right way. So, so you know, in all of life, you know, never look at yourself as, you know, totally self-made. Some aspects are self-made, but if you have guidance, if you have seniors, if you have people who know guiding you is much better. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Paul Turn. In the day, I work a pretty normal job as a doctor in Singapore. But in my spare time, I interview successful people, mainly in Asia, with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. I trace their stories right back to their humble beginnings, and I ask, what do these unconventional journeys teach us? And can we similarly be more imaginative in what we do? Welcome to the Alternative CV Podcast. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Catalyst. Catalyst is a clinician-focused startup incubator and co-working space in Singapore. To find out more about what Catalyst does, visit thecatalyst.com.sg. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to yet another episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. And today I have a very, very interesting episode lined up. My guest is none other than Dr. Francis Xiao Chun. Dr. Francis Xiaochun is probably best known for being both a doctor, an internationally renowned colorectal surgeon, as well as an entomologist, which is someone who studies insects. Dr. Francis Xiao graduated with his MBBS in 1981, that's a medical degree, despite listing medicine as the fourth choice for his admission. He obtained his fellowship in the Royal College of Surgeons in 1987 as an orthopedic trainee and thereafter immediately switched to general surgery, thinking that general surgery was of wider field than just bones alone. He was one of the first two in the new Department of Colorectal Surgery in Singapore General Hospital when it started in 1989. He thought that it was easier to become somebody big in a small new specialty rather than a minion in a huge old specialty. He became head of department in 1994, and when he left for private practice in 2003, he had led the department to international recognition with trainees from all over the world and with large numbers of research papers and regular international invitations to teach surgery, earning him the Excellence for Singapore Award in 2000. Throughout his time, he's continued his intense interest in entomology, having to date written no less than nine books on stick insects and describing more than 200 new species of insects. He has also been chairman of the board of two charities, a school for displaced students, as well as the founding chairman of their charity Guide Dogs for the Blind Singapore. He has also been a member of his church since the 1980s. Dr. Francis Xiao is such an interesting gentleman, and this was a hugely enjoyable conversation with him. He absolutely over-delivered. 
As you know by now, I'd greatly enjoy conversations with people that kind of transcend real life and go into more philosophical general principles, and our conversation did absolutely that. From talking about how Dr. Francis got interested in entomology, we got caught up in a very interesting discussion about how you can learn things in general, and this has to do with seeking out experts with humility. We talked about the learning journey that takes you from a novice to an expert, what it means to find balance in life, and much, much more. And as bonus material, we also talk about building a world-class medical department. So during Dr. Francis' tenure as head of the colorectal surgery in Singapore General Hospital, as you've previously heard, the department was internationally recognized as one of the world's leading centers for colorectal surgery. And the department consistently produced important, impactful research and attracted the top talent from all around the world to come and do fellowships with them. Dr. Francis opens up on how he shaped the department to achieve that goal, and there are many, many useful leadership lessons out there that can cut across any field. This was such an interesting conversation, and it's well, well worth your time. I highly recommend this podcast episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Francis Xiaochun. Dr. Francis Xiaochun. I hope we got your name right. Yeah, of um, course. Welcome Absolutely. to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Welcome. Yeah. So uh, just by way of introduction, uh, so you're currently in private practice. You're a colorectal surgeon. Uh, prior to this, you had quite a glittering career in that you've um, founded oh, thank Singapore. Thank you very much for saying that. Uh, no, it's uh, all truth, all truth. So you founded Singapore General Hospital, which is the, kind of the biggest hospital in Singapore. You founded its uh, Department of Colorectal Surgery, and then you were the head of department there for from like 1994 to 2003. Yeah, yeah that, that's a little bit inaccurate. I didn't actually f- uh, found it. I was a second head. Oh, right. I, I did start a department together with uh, Professor Gohaksu, who was the first head of the department. So two of us, we were the first uh, doctors in the department. Mm-hmm. So uh, alongside that, you've uh, kind of published extensively across many international medical journals in, in colorectal surgery. You've given talks across the world and... Also, right now you're in private practice, but actually, very interestingly, alongside all this, you've uh, written nine books on insects, right? Nine books. That is now. correct. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've also been the founding chairman of the Society for Guide Dogs for the Blind in Singapore. Yeah, that's the yeah Guide Dogs Association of the Blind Singapore. Yeah. So I really like to start uh, interestingly with your hobby with insects. So where where did that uh, all begin? Well, you know, a lot of people ask me that question. It all began very early in my life, you know, as far as long as I can remember, way back before primary school, before kindergarten even, I remember uh, going to my, well, my father's garden and looking for insects in the backyard. And I remember praying mantises, grasshoppers, even stick insects in those old days. Mm. And uh, those were what, those years we're talking about would be the 19, early 1960s, you know. My dad wasn't very happy about me looking for stuff. He felt that I should be concerning on my work, even though I was so young, you know. My mom was much more supportive. I remember, because in those days, I used to live with my grandma in the weekdays, and in the weekends, I'd go back home mm. to my own parents' place. And and sometimes in the weekdays, my mom would come uh, over to my grandma's house with bottles, jam jars of insects, you know. So that was sort of situation we lived in. In the old days, of course, there were many more of such insects. I mean, you don't. A lot of people don't see them now. Uh, by old days, we used to have huge flying to the house. We had atlas moth invading the house like two or three times a year. Huge ones, you know. Mm-hmm. So those old days, what we call the old kampung days, you know, were much more 
alive for children and they're much more contact with wildlife, you know. I think currently in Singapore, the problem is that we are urbanized and a lot of parents have no contact with these animals. And in fact, children who are interested get told, you know, don't touch, you know, don't keep, you know, don't catch. Uh, they're poisonous or they're dangerous or, you know, it's just illegal. And I think policies in the country don't help young people nowadays either. Well, what, do you mean, what do you mean by policies? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of things about, you know, nature is restricted, you know. The emphasis is on getting ahead in academic work. Emphasis is on extracurricular activities. Emphasis is on more tuition, mm. on things that make you shine in a urban society rather than, you know, emphasizing the outdoor, emphasizing the great natural world, the things that are there. In old days, of course, you know, uh, kids like us running around the neighborhood, you know, catching frogs and fishes and, you know, and an interaction with the natural world. So, so what's interesting to me is that you said nowadays, you know, you, you are, what's, what's emphasized is things that make you shine in the urban world. But uh, also it was kind of reflected in your dad and your mom. So why is it that your mom allowed you to do that? What, what did she see in all this? Well, I'm not sure you would ask her and she's not around <laughs> for you to ask. But uh, I think, you know, she realized my interest in those things and she did encourage it. I mean, it asked me about stick insects. Even my young days, she, she actually got me my first stick insects. Oh, wow. Okay, so she fed that passion. Yes. Yeah. Well, she, she told me one day that uh, the butcher in the market live in, in all this, we call it, in, in the hills, right? It's mm. thing, you know? And that he had stick insects. So it came one day, one baby stick insects where I kept it for a while and it died, you know? So I was very upset. And then she told me not to worry. She going talk to the to the butcher, and then she came back one day with dozens of them. You know, so we started <laughs> keeping those things. Yeah. And on the other hand, your dad was like, but did he ever like outwardly say, you know, you shouldn't, you should focus on your studies. You know, why are you doing this? And well, yeah, my dad was a bit severe. He he would threaten to beat me <laughs> if I went out of the garden yeah. and look for this thing. He wants me to be looking at my books and you know and do my studies. Yeah, how, how do you kind of convince him otherwise that, you know? Well, he didn't, he just beat me, <laughs> you yeah. know? And as it, as it grew older, of course, things began to change. Mm. And it, well, do you think, okay, so you, I mean, you're definitely, you've, you've, you've gone through your parenting journey yourself, right? How, how did that, you know, now, now that you've had the benefit of, of seeing how your mom's uh, passion, like feeding your passion has resulted in you being able to nurture this passion for the rest of your life. Do you kind of replicate that in terms of, you know, nurturing passions in uh, children? Well, you know, being interested in nature itself, when my kids were younger, they all came out with me, you know, um, mm. very young. When they were very young, I used to bring them out just for walks, hikes. I remember one, one time we, I brought my two sons on a bird watching trip with the Nature Society in Singapore. And they're looking, the people are looking, peering down these binoculars, looking at birds far away. So they all started catching insects by the, by the side, you know, and got <laughs> reprimanded by all these nature lovers. Well, the kids felt that the birds were so far away and it's nothing to do with them. Whereas the insects by the side were much more interesting and they could handle and touch them. Mm -hmm. So that was when they were very young and I actually hadn't really started much on looking at stick insects, you know. And then I realized that, yeah, to get people interested in, in nature, um, it's not just to get them to sit down and watch television or watch a show, you know, or watch uh, Natural Geographic or something like that. 
yes, they may have an interest watching those shows, but it doesn't really pick their interest deeply. You see, for people to be really interested, they have to handle, they have to touch, they have to interact. Engage. Engage, yes. Because without engagement, there's superficial interest. There's never going to be very deep interest. And so when I started my own journey into studying stick insects in more detail, they, 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 they came along, the kids came along. They, they're, they're quite experts in looking for wildlife actually in, mm. in, in that way. And so I think that's my whole worldview of the world and of Singapore and how we should interact with nature. I think a lot of message given by authorities here in this country is, you know, don't touch, don't hold, don't keep. Mm. But if we really want um, people to be interested, you really have to let them touch, feel and keep because that's the only way they can understand. You see, if you, let's give an example. I mean, if, if, if we, I just give one example, like elephants, you know, in the past, you've read a couple of stories before where the zoo, where the elephants attack the keeper and the you know, keeper is injured and so forth. People say, oh, no, no, it's dangerous, it's wildlife. And that's what you read from newspapers or you read from internet or you watch it from television. But people who really know are those people who interact and the keeper, if you talk to him, you know, he still loves the animals because he knows mm. this is, you know, certain behavior or he may have transgressed that sort of behavior and let that to happen. Uh, but people who don't know will then be very fearful. But those who know, and you read many stories of naturalists, uh, snake lovers who are bitten by snakes, tiger lovers who are more by tigers, uh, or shark lovers who are bitten by sharks, but you know, they still love them mm. because there's an interaction, there's a understanding, you know, not the superficial kind that people who only watch newspapers or, you know, or read newspapers or watch television have. So- so where's, where's that space for doing that in Singapore, if, if, especially as, you know, the, the kind of urbanization is growing and then these well, places interact? It starts with, with pets, with interaction, with, with, with things that uh, are available in everyday life. You know, if people don't have time for, for pets, like even starting with fishes or starting with cats or starting with dogs, uh, they'll never have, or not never really, but they will not develop that kind of passion to go into other um, areas of, of nature. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's not just about nature. You know, this, this concept of must see, must touch, must engage, right? It sounds like it's uh, something which is a principle more apl- applicable to the whole of life, really. Yes, not just... I, be- I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can bring it, you know, to the present day when we talk about medicine. Mm. You know, as doctors, we are experts in the field because we touch, we see, we feel, we interact with patients. You know, but there are a lot of student experts who think that they know medicine. You know, and yourself as a doctor of a few years, eh, you understand mm. that uh, you cannot be a doctor just by watching Google mm. or watching YouTube one episode and you're the expert. And there are lots of those people now, you know, and they are like the same. You know, people who have watched one episode of how you should interact with snakes, they're telling you what you should do, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Compared to those who have been doing all their life. Def- yeah, definitely in, in medicine, you see those doctors with years of experience since the clinical acumen it's like you know when a patient is sick just by walking past the bed it's just yeah. a yeah having touched and feel and yeah, seen exactly. for Absolutely. many many so years it, it really appears it really um, is true in every sphere of life mm-hmm. so I mean, this is clearly a passion of yours, you know, insects, right? To the point where, you know, we were just talking, you're saying, oh, you know, somebody had asked you to go to Mandai to catch insects later. Or, or, I mean, I read stories also about how when you go overseas for talks, you would 
then go to the places around those areas to, to look for insects and stay all the way up to like 3, 4 a.m. doing things. So, so it's a passion uh, that you really feed. Uh, has it, I'm sure you've come across this question many, many times. How do you balance this with you know, your, your other clinical duties? Because it seems like you spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, I think what, what is balance? You know, balance is, is not balancing, you know, time for work versus time for play or, you know, time for other things. Balance really is making sure that you give time to do what you want to do. I think if you, if you look back, you don't have to look back all your whole life, but just look back at yesterday. Were you happy with what you did yesterday? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, because you did what you wanted. Yeah. You know, you look back one whole week, you know, are you happy the whole week? Did you do what you wanted to do? But say, for example, you know, you miss your best friend's birthday, you know, or, or you miss doing something you really wanted to do because you were too lazy to do it. You didn't have time to do it. Then that, that occasion is wasted. The occasion is a lost opportunity. That occasion is gone forever. You know, now, but if you grab hold of that occasion and you did it, that made your day, mm. that made your week, you know? So it's the same as you, as you extend backwards, then you got to ask yourself how you achieve, let's put it this way, rather than saying balance, how do you achieve equilibrium? You know, and equilibrium means you are happy, you're satisfied with what you did today, what you did yesterday, what you did last week. And, and the way that, that you do it is, I do what I feel that you know, will, will, will give me that equilibrium so that I will not be regretting it. I'll not be disappointed at what I didn't do or I did, right? So you'll, fi you, you'll find as you go through life that the people who achieve a lot are those who are doing a lot. As, as head department before, I realized that those people who do nothing or achieve nothing in the time in the department are those who are perpetually tell me they have no time. You know, so if you say, look, can you do some uh, research? Can you do this? Oh, I really have no time. And at the end of the day, they achieve nothing. But those people, they say, okay, you know, they are the ones that actually are the busiest. The busiest guys seem to have the most time because they have, they realize what they want to achieve. They realize what they want to do and they give time to do it. Uh, so the fellas that have no time are those that actually are doing nothing. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that it's almost like a mental construct. Almost like if you tell yourself you have no time, then you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you have no time. But if you decide that this is something that makes you happy and you want to make time for it, then you can... Yeah, so that's the balance, you see. Yeah. You know, you're giving time for yourself to do what you want to do. Mm. Because there's always time if you want. Everybody has the same time. It depends on what you feel is important. Mm. And then is there a flip side to that where you don't give time to things that you don't want to do and then you... If you give... You see... A very important, well, I'm not sure if this is a true survey or a false survey, but years ago, years ago, somebody told me this, that there was a survey done and people at the deathbed were asked, you know, what is it you regret? Nobody regrets, you know, not doing more work, you're not doing more time, not earning more money, but, you know, people at the deathbed, what they regret most is not having done what they, they would love to do, you know, uh, not spending time or not doing things with people they love most of people who love them most right but the basic uh, thing is not doing what they want to do a lot of people put off doing what they want to do till they say oh no wait till i go on holiday wait till i retire you know but the holiday never comes you know or retirement never comes or they fall sick or they die before that happens you know so the way to live a balanced life 
Because really, what is balanced life? You can't take a scale and weigh it. Mm. You, you can't say, oh, I spend 20% of my time at work. I spend 20% of my time sleeping. I spend 20% of my time, you know, doing my hobbies. No, that's not balance. Balance is you feel that like you're, you're happy with what you've done. You know, that's balance, right? So going out and giving time to what is important uh, to you as a person is balance. So I, I kind of want to ground this back into the, say the, the, the Singapore context or the, the medicine context or, or more broadly the kind of professional context because I think there's a lot of um, idea out there that, uh, that the prevailing sentiment is that, oh no, this is so busy and I'm trying to just keep my head above water with just my normal day-to-day -day work. Like, so what advice would you give uh, young people who are in that phase uh, of their careers, especially since you've lived through that yourself? And I'm, well, you know, young fellows have the most energy. They have the most to gain at a stage of their life. They also have the most to lose. Mm. Because if you don't do what you want to do, you don't achieve what you want to achieve when you're young. When you're old, do you have time to do it? Do you have energy to do it? You know, do you have the space to do it? Mm -hmm. uh, and would you do it then? Or are you, are you capable of doing it then? You see? So I think young people should look not just at extending uh, their career, making money, but asking themselves how or what and when they should do what they want to do. And when I say want to do, I don't mean uh, just to get rich or just to get famous, but really what is it you want to do that will make you the kind of person that you should be? You know, the kind of person that is happy, the kind of person that is productive, the kind of person that you will be proud of at the end of your life. You know, so uh, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, I don't mean that if you want to be the best bank robber in the world, you know, you can <laughs> do it then. But, you know, so when we talk about being the kind of, being, doing what makes you happy, doing what will make you a better person, you know, and going out and doing it. Mm. You making use of your talents, making use of what you love to do, making use of the time, that you would otherwise allocate to, oh, I won't say everything is frivolous, you know, but really of lesser quality to yourself as a as a human being on earth. Mm. Mm. You also seem to be quite like you. You can tell for yourself, quite clear-minded about what means more to you. Yeah, yeah. How how, how do you, do you have any tips of like how do you how do you discover this for yourself? Is it is it kind of like you you kind of gradually pinpoint you know over life as you go throughout life you, you you find your way somehow or is there any way of like being more any questions you can ask yourself to make yourself more clear-headed on this well you know i don't know i have, I have an affinity with nature in some way mm. my favorite hobby when i was young uh, was i'm a bookworm you know <laughs> uh, was going to the national library and pouring through all those animal books that which i used to borrow every every week Every Saturday, we were there at National Library. Mm. Uh, and also after the library, giving them the books back and getting new ones, my mom would bring me next door to, to the Raffles Museum where we would look at the animal exhibits and I would just draw the animals there. You know? Sunday, we always go either to the Botanic Gardens or to the zoo. And that's, when we're talking about zoo, we're talking about a Johor Zoo. Because <laughs> they, they, that's, that's what a zoo is in those days. And uh, you know, we'll be observing animals that's what I, wa I, I wanted to do. And that's what my mom and my, even my dad at that stage, uh, when I was older, yeah, th that's what we used to do. You know, so that sort of thing develops 
and I can't remember a time when I was put off, you know, by nature or by animals. Mm. In fact, I want to be a vet before I became a doctor. Wow. Okay. Let's come back to catching insects. How do you, how do you do that? Do you? Yeah. So 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 the so that sort of thing developed when I was very young. I told you my mom got me these stick insects. I kept them. And then over a period of time, those things were lost as I went to school and, and so forth. Later on, sometime when I was a junior doctor, actually it must be about housemanship time, I went on a trip to Malaysia. And again, I encountered this thick insects, you know. Randomly like? No, no, we, 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 we went to Nature Society for, for a trip actually to Tasik Chini and I found it, wow. There were stick insects there. I never knew there were stick insects in Singapore, mm. I, except the ones I kept as a pet. And I never knew they were. Because, you know, the insects in my garden were grasshoppers, spring mantis, you know, butterflies, dragonflies, that sort of thing. Stick insects are special, you know. I mean, very few people would have seen them, even those that have a garden at home. And, and that was my case. So when I came back, I tried to find some information. I couldn't find any in the library. You know, I'm a, I've been a bookworm since I was very young. And so I started searching out people. And, and that's the thing. If you don't have knowledge, then you start to search for knowledge. And if you, you can't find the knowledge, then you search for people who have the knowledge. And that's what I did. Then I ended up at the Department of Zoology at the National University of Singapore. And I went to look for the entomologists there and I talked to them. And they said, oh, yeah. You know, we have them here. Nobody's doing any research. Nobody knows much about them. Mm. And then I was encouraged. Why don't you go and look? Why don't you go and start something since you're interested? Because nobody else seems to be. And so that started my journey. So I, I started, this must be in the, in the early 1990s. I started going to the forest. You know, I started looking for these things. And I published my first book, I think it was 1995, you know, the Science Center Guide on Sticking Sex of Singapore. Okay. You know? So after a while, you became the local expert. I became the local expert. And then I had to know more, right? Because mm. I'm the local expert. So when you um interested, you get more knowledge. When you get more knowledge, you become more interested. And because you are more interested, people also around you get more interested in these things. So it's a not a vicious cycle, a gracious cycle mm. where you become deeper and deeper into into the topic into the into this uh, stick insects and then it became such that it took up a whole lot of my time you know wherever i went i tried to look for more of these things whether in singapore overseas and then i developed you know you develop the circle of people who are interested in this as well so not just in singapore but also in, in other countries people know that you are the expert from singapore and, he, you, and because Southeast Asia is a hot spot for biodiversity and there's actually nobody doing this. So, mm. you know, I became an expert, you know, people know in, in Indonesia and in Malaysia, you know, in the surrounding region, I became the expert in the region. And then, you know, so that extended into, you know, rest of Asia, rest of Europe, even America, you know, so the circle gets bigger. So now around the world, people know and that I'm an authority on sick insects. You see, so that's how our interest gets gets bigger. And if you are the if you are the authority, you can't suddenly lose interest also. And you, and, and there's very <laughs> little chance of peer doing pressure. that. <laughs> well, it's not just peer pressure, but you become you know very interested. You know, 
this is okay. So yeah, this is too good an opportunity for me to to, to miss. And I I just wanted to push, press in a little bit more on this, in terms of zooming out and talking about what it means to become an expert, because clearly you're an expert in medicine, you're an expert in colorectal surgery, but the path to becoming an expert in insects wasn't that straightforward because it's like your your passion and it's not, uh, and it's something that you had to actively work towards developing. But I think that you, you, you kind of highlighted some really interesting things there. One is that you found a community around yourself, like, like it, you, you gathered people who kind of spurred your interest on. Then another thing which I, I got from you was that you, the, the very first point was you sought out some experts because they could kind of point you in the right direction as well. Yes. Yeah. And then would you say that there was an element of, of, of how, how do you gain knowledge? Is it you, you self-studied or, or, do you, or is it easier to, to have somebody teach you, like have a formal education process? Like, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not a professional entomologist by any chance. And that process in the early days was quite difficult. I went and sought out locally Professor Yen Murphy, who is, you know, mm. one of the first, well, he's not even a local entomologist. He's really he's an Englishman. But he's the first sort of recognized local uh, zoologist, you know, who who knows a wide um, variety of topics related to nature. And he uh, basically told me, oh, there are a few species here, <laughs> you know, and he gave me a, one of those mimograph copy of a very ancient book, you know, 1990s book <laughs> on stick insects of the world. I, I couldn't read it. It's all in Latin. <laughs> and then at that, right about that time, somehow I stumbled upon this group Things like study group in in the UK, and these people have been doing it for a few years, so they have some basic knowledge. So I hooked up with them, and they in those days they guided me, and and that was very helpful. What do you mean by guided you? They guided me in well giving me further knowledge because I looked at the local literature. There's hardly anything. They have a couple of papers written in the early fifties and sixties. Not even on local species. It was on introduced species. Uh, if I if I may say so. When I was young, the sting insect species I kept was a very spectacular species, you know, big, um, at least, you know, 20, 30 centimeters long. Wow, no way. Yeah. But it actually wasn't a local species. It was a species imported from Indonesia, uh, but kept by a lot of Chinese and Malay folks here uh, because they were, because first of all, they were spectacular. Secondly, they were keeping their droppings and making, boiling into tea, you know, no and drinking, way. drinking it. Because they felt that it was a cure for variety of ailments, ranging from asthma to diarrhea and, and, and constipation and so forth. In fact, only about some time ago, recently, some chap, random chap, you know, rang me up and got my name from somewhere and asked me if I could give him a collection of sting insect droppings as feces. Because he saw a Chinese uh, traditional medicine practitioner who told him that, oh, you know, your ailment cannot be cured unless you take uh, tea made from these things like droppings. No so, way. So it goes back <laughs> quite, yeah. So it goes back, uh, you know, quite a lot of years. Yeah. So in those days when I, when I started, I couldn't find much literature. And I saw, so again, I poured into books, mm. you know, because, you know, books is where you get knowledge, right? And I found a, loc- a book about local wildlife and in the book i think it's called wildlife of singapore actually and it, in there it claimed talked about this stick insects and claimed that it came from arabia saudi arabia so obviously it's erinus this book told erinus it was found in a desert in an oasis you know <laughs> so you can be totally led astray 
by even by books, especially nowadays through internet, mm. a lot of fake information, false information. So these people who are experts had much more knowledge than I in those days. And so they guided me and, you know, uh, some of them do travel internationally. And in the early days, one of them came over here and, you know, we went around to the various forests and parks and, you know, this is, this is uh, what the insects do. This is how you're going to look for them. And so, you know, that kind of guidance, mentorship, whether it's in uh, science, entomology or medicine, corrective surgery is very important. You know, it's, as we say, experience comes from, or knowledge comes from experience and experience comes from failure. And that's a terrible way of learning. It's better to learn from the ex- from the failures of others, you know, mm-hmm. or from experience mm-hmm. of others rather than going out yourself and learning all the wrong things before you learn the right right tricks or the right way. Yeah. So, so, so learning and be guided by others is so crucial. In the same, you know, in my own life as a colorectal surgeon, you know, you don't want to go out and operate the wrong way uh, before you find the right way. So, so, you know, in all of life, you know, never look at yourself as, you know, totally self-made. Some aspects are self-made, but if you have guidance, if you have seniors, if you have people who know guiding you is much better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, which is why which is why we do this podcast, you know. Yes, to, to, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To get experience and wisdom from other people. But you, you know, this topic about finding experts, right? How do you how do you approach them and how do you get the help? I'd say you just go to them with interest and humility and then say, I know, I, I would really like to learn. And then do they tend to respond well to that? Because it seems like you have, yeah, you, you know, you reached out cold almost to people to get their help. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that is actually a very good start for a young person, for an inexperienced uh, tyro in mm. anything, in any aspects of life. Just go to somebody and say, sir, you know, mm. I want to learn. You know, nobody is hard on that sort of thing. Mm. But if I come and tell you, look, I'm an expert, I want to go with you. You know, and see what you're doing right. <laughs> Nobody accepts that. You know, if you go to anybody, whether it's any field of life, and say, "Look, you know, I, I, I'm just starting. I'm very interested. Mm. Can you guide me? Can you be my friend? Yeah. You know, can you teach me?" I, I don't think anybody would reject uh, such a request. Yeah. So, so you find whatever field, in, in, even in surgery, you know, uh, if you go to your boss and you say, "Look," Hey, I really love this technique you're doing. You know, I'm very interested. I'd like to spend some time with you. And I think that's the whole crux of scientists. You know, if you look at medicine also, and of course, the temperament of people, especially in natural history, whether you're talking about insects or other animals, people who are interested in animals tend to be kind people. Not all, yeah, but tend to be kind people, tend to be people who are, who love, you know, animals and and therefore you know they tend to have a kind heart also mm. uh, and they're all very willing to you know get people in and teach them because this is what they're passionate about see when you're passionate about something you want to extend that passion to others mm. you're not just cold heart still you're not there to you know make a million dollars or 10 million dollars or then make a, you know a billion dollars you know you're there because you're passionate about the thing and if you're passionate it tends to start a flame right to inflame others you know so I think, yeah, it never hurts to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm really interested. 
And in fact, I've never rejected anybody who comes to me and say, look, I want to learn this, you know. Yeah, and, and I can see it uh, working the other way for you because, you know, just now we talked about community and subsequently you were saying that, you know, you became known as the Singapore expert and then you get you, then when you went internationally, there were other people yes. who wanted to collaborate with you. So it seems like that's is the same kind of process, you know, people, you reach out to other people, they reached out to you and yes. it's a shared passion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and uh, I suppose a common desire to kind of learn from each other. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole premise of scientific advancement. You know, I mean, these couple of months, you hear people talking about stealing scientific knowledge, you know, and, and, and blocking scientific knowledge, and it's ours. You know, it's all rubbish, you know. Science is not science until it's shared, you know. Hmm. If, you're, if you're not sharing it, there are only two reasons. One, you're making a weapon to kill the other guy. <laughs> you know? Or two, yeah. you're making something secret to sell to everybody else. Mm. You know? But science is not about making money. Medicine is not about making money. Medicine is about discovery. And the discovery uh, is only glamorous when it's shared. You know? That's why, you know, people who discover something, they say, Eureka, right? You go yeah. around shouting it, right? You don't want to say, hey, not whisper into a, you know, <laughs> In your room and say wow you know you go and shout wow you know yeah and because you shout wow because you want everybody to know mm-hmm. and so you know the process of scientific discovery or scientific attainment of knowledge is really to be shared and and in entomology as well as in corrective surgery uh, you find that the process of teaching is also one of learning you know when you in fact you ask a lot of teachers when you teach, that's when you learn the most. Mm. Also, because you often consolidate your thought. Often, uh, the one learning asks questions that are pertinent, which perhaps you never asked before. And so it's, you know, the one who wants to teach the most often is the one who also has the most knowledge. Mm. Because you gain it also from your students, because they are as passionate as you. Mm. You, you see this in colorectal surgery as well. We know this where you go to other people and say, hey, this is very cool. Can I learn this from you? Yeah, you, you, you find that in, in surgery, it's the same. You know, people, that's why we have conferences. That's why we have attachments. That's why we send people overseas to learn from the masters, right? It's the same, you know, we talk about uh, Kung Fu, right? It's the same thing. You know, you go to a master and you say, yeah, can you be my Kung Fu master? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's how, how that's how it spread. You don't withhold knowledge because if you have a skill, I've never seen any corrector surgeon or let, let's put it in any doctor who's developed a new technique or developed a new medicine and say, no, I'm going to keep it only for my own patients. Mm. These guys who found something new, they always want to tell the most people, look, this is what I found. I want to teach you. I want you to do it. You know, mm. and you find it's true. The so this is again the passion, and this is again what keeps the world going. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something which you made me reflect on is is about you know just a passion to get better at, at, at what you're doing. You know, get better at your knowledge of insects or, or your skills as a clinical no, it, surgeon. It, it it's not just you know. That's why I said earlier, if you have something that is worthwhile, that something makes you a better person. But because it makes you a better person, you want the next person to be better mm. for whatever you're doing, you know, whether it's insects, because you want a guy to know this is interesting. In medicine, you want the guy to know this is helpful. You want your patients to know this will help you. Mm. So, you know, it is that sort of temperament, that sort of thinking 
that makes us human. So kind of related to this point, so I heard this story about how uh, you were like the first person or one of the first few people to bring like stapled hemorrhoidectomies, so treating hemorrhoids with staples to Singapore uh, or really to, to, to Southeast Asia. Can you, can you tell that story? <laughs> well, you know, we in, in 1996-97 or before that, 1995, I think, I was invited, in fact, by Professor Steve Wexner from Freude Cleveland Clinic to give a lecture on hemorrhoids. And I went over there and I gave my lecture. I thought it was a tremendous lecture, as usual. <laughs> uh, and the audience asked me a question, you know, what about staple hemorrhoidectomy? And I was totally stumped. I never heard of it. <laughs> you know, that was I, a foreign expert, and I never heard of this. It was very new. It was just at that time, just being discussed and described by the Italians. So we came back and uh, I was here at the department and I told my guys, some of them, oh yeah, we read it somewhere. And then we approached the company, you know, at that time they was making these staplers. I said, look, you gonna bring this in? They said, oh no, it's not been brought into Singapore yet. So, so we said, look, you know, so we read out the technique. We said, look, you know, bring it in. We'll use another device to do it, you know. And they were using a circular stapler, a specially made circular stapler. So we said, look, why don't we just use another stapler? And re- so mm. we did use other staplers which are not custom made for this device. And then they got worried. So they quickly brought the stapler in. So we were the first ones in Singapore to use it. And, and then we were very pleased with the instrument. Because we were pleased with the instrument, they were very happy with us, you know. And they wanted to bring this instrumentation to the surrounding countries in Asia. And at that time, I must tell you, this product made by this American company was actually invented by Italian. And the mm. Americans were not happy. You know, just like the Americans are not happy about anything that's not American, right? So they weren't using it. They were not using it. Stapler hemodectomy. But we, at that time, together with their manager for, for, for Asia Pacific, we were the first ones to fire this stapler in Australia. The first uh, stapler hemodectomy in Australia was done by myself. So was the first stapler in India, the first stapler in China, and some of the other countries in Southeast Asia. So in a way, we, we, we a lot of people regard us as the one who taught them their country. And so it extended. So of course now you know that there are millions of these stapler done around the world. So our technique has been practiced, you know, and, and the founder, the one who actually Describe this technique, of course, Antonio Longo is a good friend of mine and we often mm. appear together at conferences. So that's how it went. And because we are so eager, you know, Singapore, when I was head of the Department of Corrective Surgery in SGH, we were like a mecca, you know, of innovation and development in Asia. And in fact, we, anything new, we were very keen to get our hands on. And because we started uh, a lot of this learning new things we learn overseas, and then at the same time we also describe things that we 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 thought about and we started, you know. So we had a lot of people from around the world, Australia, you know, Germany, Italy, even the US, uh, UK, you know, China and 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 Malaysia, Thailand, coming to us for training, mm. you know. And some of my friends said, oh, you guys are the reverse HMDP. You know, HMDP is the Singapore Government Health Development Plan where we send our guys overseas, right, for training. But they are saying, look, you are the only guys that people from overseas coming to train with, you know. So we were quite 
because we were enthusiastic, because we were willing to develop things, so we became quite a center mm, mm. innovation. Yeah, so in that way also we are, you know, we are helping them and we are also developing ourselves. It sounds like you guys have quite a culture of uh, being willing to try new things and be innovative, embrace technology that was uh, just fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I think that's, that's true. We're not just uh, embracing any technology, but we wanted to be ahead, you know, of the curve. But if there's a question you're asking me, we can mm. talk a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I became head of department, I think, in around about 1993, 1994. And I've, I've, I, had, I inherited a good department. We, you know, we were very young. The department started, I think, in 1987. I had a good bunch of guys. When I became head, I asked myself three questions. You know, why do I want to be a head? And, you know, you don't want to be a head just because you want to be a head. Because if you don't have a plan, you don't have a strategy, or you don't have a goal, then you're not, you're going to hit it and there's nothing. Mm. You know? Yep. And and so I thought about that and I wa- what I wanted was to build a world-class department. Something that will leave a mark uh, on the world in for better. And secondly, the, I asked myself this question. How am I going to do it? And after having come back from St. Mark's, I realized that people recognize what you have done. You cannot just shout and say, I'm the best. Because, you know, people just shout you down. Mm. You know, I mean, we see, you know, political figures now, you say they are the best in everything, right? But what is it they have done? Nothing. You know, when I, what I learned in my stint overseas in St. Mark's in London, which is at that time one of the best centers in the world for corrective surgery, is that they are well known because they write a lot of good papers, important research, new innovation, uh, new breakthrough strategies. And I realized that. So even before I became head, I wrote a lot of papers, you know, and a lot of people still quote those papers. And my mentors in St. Mark said to me, look, you're writing a lot of not just papers, but a lot of meaningful, you know, and strategic papers. And for myself, because I wanted to target especially the West, so I sent every single paper to the British Journal of Surgery. Mm. See, a lot of people write and they send a paper to the Journal A, one paper to the Journal B, one paper to the Journal C. It doesn't do anything because, if, you know, I want to just target one journal so people recognize your name. In fact, I got so recognized at the British Journal of Surgery, the editor-in-chief, Robin Williamson wrote to me and said, look, he writes my papers, must have joined the editorial board. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he did. You know? mm. So he invited me on the editorial board of British Journal of Surgery. Once you get a foothold in there, of course, with the help also of my mentors in St. Mark's, they actually introduced me to him also. Then you get more invitations. Uh, you get to other journals, to other boards. You get down into the lecturing circuit also. So when I became head, all these things also uh, helped us a lot because a lot of people knew us. And and uh, and so my strategy was, okay, guys, let's all get together. We all must start writing. You know, it's not just about doing work. It's about getting your name published. Then that's how you get recognition. recognition. Because we are here, when, we, when everybody is pulled up, when everybody is built up, the whole is, is stronger. 
if people uh, you know, don't want to do anything, then we all are weaker because the strength is it's always in the weakest link, right? So yeah, I want everybody to be strong. So in that way, I divided my department also into various subgroups. You know, one in charge of a certain spe- subspecialty in colorectal. You know, one person in charge of molecular biology, one person in charge of functional disease, one person in charge of cancer, and so forth. And I said to them, you know, we all must work together. If we all work together, then, you know, I'm going to be ahead. Then you must listen to what I say. If I come to work and you're quarreling with me all the time, or I'm quarreling with you all the time, then it's either you leave or I don't be ahead. Mm. So I actually got those people to say, okay, look, you be ahead. We all agree with you. In which case, then you listen to me. <laughs> because there cannot be two heads, right? And, and, the, and the third thing I considered was, how long is this going to take to establish this world-class department? I mean, you know, if people want to be ahead for a year, two years, and then run away, I mean, you're not going to do anything. You know, so in fact, I was ahead like for almost a decade, you know. And, and, and you need a long time. You need time for the good papers, not writing toilet papers, right? <laughs> so you need a long time. You need the strategy doing. So at that time also, the research, I told the guys, look, let's not do what others are doing. So at that time, one of the popular things was, of course, staple and black meat. But one of the other things that coming out at that time was colonic pouches. When people were trying to see, oh, you know, colonic pouch versus no pouch, the function, whether it's good or not. I said, look, why do that? If we just do that, we are replicating. Let's think, colonic pouch is going to be shown to be superior. Why don't we do the next step? So it's superior what else? So we were ahead of everybody because while people are still trying to copy everybody and to do a trial on whether colonic pouch is better than a straight anastomosis for after ultra-low resection of the rectum. Mm. We were doing what sort of pouch, you know, what sort of length of pouch, other alternatives. So we were like three steps for other people. Mm. So when, when two years later, three years later, when, when people's papers came out to say the pouch is better, we were already saying what kind of pouch is good, you know, what kind of other pouches is, is good or no good. You know, so we were ahead of the curve, you know, mm. and everybody said, well, how did you do that? Because we knew, or you know, you can always roughly estimate the result, and then what's the next thing people will do? Hmm. You know, so you have to look forward, right? It's because very strategic, yeah. Yeah, without vision, the people perish, right? Hmm. So you have a vision. You want to know what you want to do, how to do it, how much time it takes, and then plan it carefully. So, so the department grew, you know, and 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 we had a lot of interaction from around the world. Also, of course, you need to spread your network. I mean, a lot of people will say, for example, they'll say, oh, Cleveland Clinic's the best. Every training gets sent there. What you're doing is not training department. What you're doing is cloning Cleveland Clinic in Singapore. Now, I'm, I was totally against that. So I, I'll make sure that, look, a training A, go to US, the next training, go to Australia, the next training, go to UK, or next training, go to China, or next training, go to Japan. Because you want a worldwide mm. infiltration. <laughs> and connection because people will learn different strategies from different hospitals, different management strategies, different techniques, because everybody has something to teach you and and everybody has their own network. So if your network is just in one clinic, in one state in the US, you know, you have a very narrow mindset. But if all your guys have different connections everywhere, basically you are the king of the world, you know? So we had that, you know? So if I need something from Australia or I need some 
you know, one of my guys has all his connection. If I need something in China, one of my guys has all the connection. You know, if I need uh, a guy from you from the UK, somebody has a connections. You know, so that's how it works. So if if you have a plan and and you see where you're going and you plan beforehand, aim at something. Don't aim at nothing, and give yourself time. We did it, and 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 you know, it's still going strong. Fascinating. Fascinating, and then and how? I mean, I, I think the best part is that you ask all these questions at the start. Yes, of the night. You see, I mean, I see a lot of people, and people ask me, you know, look, ask me ahead. What's your plan? If you don't have a plan, you're sure to hit it. But it means you're sure to fail. <laughs> you know, are the people for you or against you? If you don't go around establishing, you see, you want to be the leader of a pack. It's a wolf, a pack of wolves. You know, they will attack you. You know, they will kill you unless you. Agree beforehand, and that's why you look at stories, you look at cinemas, you look at wildlife. It teaches you a lot. Einstein said, "Look at nature, you learn a lot." The wolf pack, you know, the guy fights with the previous head to be to the head, you know, and how the wolf pack will obey him because they know that he's stronger than them. <laughs> so you have to go into these guys. You know, every doctor is uh, let's put this way, an alpha a male or alpha female, right? They will kill you if they can because they want to be better than you. So unless you show them, look, I'm the one who's going to make you great. And in fact, you do it. You know, you you a lot of departments fail because the head has not established that backing order. That look, if I'm head, you listen to me. So a lot of people in the department say that they're better than the head, or say that you know I'm not listening to you, or I think I'm better than you. Now, so you establish that 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 headship thing. But second. You also have to make them have benefits. You cannot have all the benefits yourself. Some head, yes, they have the packing order. The other head, everybody is scared of them. But whatever anybody writes in the department, the head is gets the glory. I mean, that's the worst department to be in. Nobody will do anything for you. Mm. So I made sure that people are rewarded. You know, so the guy, for example, he's in charge of the interactive physiology, or he's in charge of cancer research. He's he he's he's the first top guy there. You know. The guy who is in charge of constipation research or whatever, he's the top guy there. He gets the glory, but if he fails, he also gets the blame because I'm not in charge, you know. So in that way, they we all get equally rewarded, but they then listen to me also because they know that when they do well, they are seen to be the guy who made it, not me. Mm. Now, but if every part works well, then of course the sum is greater than you know the individual units. So I think that's very important. So there must be a leadership, but there also must be a return of the advantage to all these fellows. So in the same way, also I I expect all these chaps, each in charge of their own group, to also give advantage to the most junior person because the jun- most junior person, as I said, is the weakest link, and he's the one who's going to break you. So the houseman or the mo, if he has anything to do with any research. Or any work, he should get the glory also. Mm. A lot of people leave them up, you know. So we make you do all the work, but your name doesn't appear anyway. Mm. You know, you forever, you forever for the rest of your life, you you will be more disfact and say, you know, professor, whatever is an asshole, <laughs> you know. But if you do the work, then you rightly you should, you know. And and the junior fellows are the ones. You see, you, you got to look at it long term. The junior fellows are the ones who need. More of this of their name rather than the senior follow. Because if you haven't mm. established anything, then you are 
good for nothing, right? So then you should be able to give the junior fellow to have his name first or whatever. And he in turn will praise you. You see, and that's one good thing about establishing relationship and training people. I mean, if I am, tra- I was trained as a mark, so I always say good things, right? Somebody who's trained by me will always say good things because if he say I'm lousy, then what is he? <laughs> because, you know, the, tra- the, the, the disciple cannot be greater than the master, right? Or the master, you know, if the master is poor, the disciple cannot be better. Mm. Yeah, you learn all these things from Kung Fu movies, right? Mm, yeah. You know, what clan are you from, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, or your master is great, therefore you must be you know, great as well. So I think that's very important. A lot of departments fail, I see, because of this. They don't give uh, credit to the juniors and therefore the juniors don't feel like giving credit to the department. Mm. You see? Yeah. So I, 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 I think it's all about working relationship and making people feel they are part of the team and making people realize that their contribution is powerful, their contribution is appreciated and they are appreciated. As well as a vision that they all buy into. Yeah, of course, that's the first thing. But they only buy in if they, uh, they they get something. I mean, you will not buy shares in a company if at the end of it all the company fails or you get nothing back, right? Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Catalyst, which is a clinician-focused startup incubator and co-working space in Singapore. To find out more about Catalyst, visit their website at thecatalyst.com.sg. Special thanks to Dr. Reina Damawan, Utma Aurora, Azra Zulaika, and the team at Catalyst for their help in making this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, do consider subscribing if you haven't done so already, or sharing this episode with your friends. I'd love for more people to benefit from this. If you've got something to say, you can always reach out to me at poll, that's P-A-U-L, at alternativecv.fm. Leave a review, get in touch, pick up the conversation, anything you want to talk about. You can also find show notes about everything that we've talked about and any references we made at alternativecv.fm. See you next week.